0: All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Kaya Alexander, host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom podcast. Really excited to welcome you to our new segment with Lee Jessup. The segment's called This Just In, where we're going to identify industry trends, business ley lines, and examine what's happening right now in Hollywood that we feel warrants discussion. What's hot? What's not? What's happening with the hiccups to the big hits with a big picture assessment of the industry that also prizes the deals that are informing the market? We're gonna conclude this segment with a section called Writers Take Five, because we both love writers. We have a lot of writers in our ecosystem, and we're always curious what's happening for the careers of writers in the entertainment industry um, as we go, as we go on this roller coaster ride that is especially of the last couple of years and continuing through 2022 so lee welcome to the show thank you so much for having me this is so much fun oh, i'm so excited <laughs> that you're here business nerds unite it's so great indeed we'll hold our flag proud well we have a lot to talk about and we might popcorn so to speak, and bounce around a little bit because this year is so interesting. It's a very dynamic year in the business and maybe even more so now than ever because of the changes that have happened in the stock market and how that's affecting the industry. So that may be a good place to dive in is to talk about that because while the box office appears to be back you know, and booming with Top Gun and others, um, now the stocks have dropped. So I'm curious to talk to you about this. Of
1: course, everybody's uh, running a little scared seeing what happened with Netflix. Um, You know, Netflix was the 500-pound gorilla that could not be disturbed in any way, shape or form, but it was inevitable, right? At some point there was going to be a downturn. I'm certainly hearing a lot of talk from, especially people outside of the industry. What does this mean? Is this over? Did Netflix lose the battle? Netflix is still leading. Netflix still has a ridiculous amount of subscribers. They're still making a lot of content. um, And on top of it, which we know that in the last couple of weeks, they've been, making the tour, going to the big agencies, swearing up and down that they are, they have money to spend, they are producing, they're making content, they're buying programming. Um, and I have writers that are developing in the Netflix ecosystem. And let me tell you, things are moving. Um, it's, it's really not a machine that has stopped. We're looking to see what comes next with Netflix. They've already spoken somewhat publicly about the fact that they are expecting an additional subscriber drop. Um yes everybody's going to freak out about. But, you know, there there is that worry. And there's always been that discussion of who's going to be left standing at the end of the day. Now, the end of the day is what is being redefined over and over. Right. I mean, ultimately, it was at some point it was like 2017. We're going to hit, hit peak TV and then we'll be done. No, it's 2019. Now we're in 2022 and we're producing more than ever. And the growth looks to be continuing, especially with Paramount Plus and Peacock uh, now solidly in the game, but not yet having those staple, okay, I have to subscribe kind of shows. Um, but it's all of this, ultimately, all of these companies other than Disney um, are operating as they do, but we're we're seeing stock prices vary on all of them. Things move up and down. Um, but I think we're also seeing that reflected in the economy at large, right? I mean, we're looking at a possible recession. We're looking at gas prices higher than ever. We're looking at all of these things that are affected by world events, such as the war in Ukraine and pandem- pandemic and all of those things. Um, so I think it's important to remember that one is actually connected to the other um, and Netflix is not going anywhere. Um, so that's an important thing to remember. And I, I think that there's still a very long game to be played to figure out who's left standing. I can tell you who's in the lead, um, or who's looking good, but I I cannot tell you what it will be like in 5 years, but I'm sure that it'll still be going.
0: Oh, absolutely. And it's a good it's worthy to remember that Netflix, that Apple, that Amazon are dot .coms, right? So mm-hmm. they own, they own their subscribers. They yep. own those all those names, numbers, et cetera, they own all that data. So they have that that power play of always being able to talk to their audience and market anything that they're doing directly to their audience without going, you know, through the exhibitors, although we know that they're doing that more and more because they want the awards. Yeah, listen, the, another thing to remember is that Disney is the only
1: cor- the only company that's not corporate owned, right? They are their own um, multiverse, if you will. Um, everything else is owned by a corporation on the studio side. Um, you, you are absolutely correct that, that Amazon Netflix, they are digital companies, Apple plus, which actually brings us to a, a writerly driven topic of, is there going to be a strike in 2023? Because yeah, that's, when that's the big one. Yeah. That's when those digital, um, contracts are up for renewal. They're on different contracts, uh, for writer's rooms. Then the AMPTP, um, the Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers that just finished their new contract in 2020 and kind of rushed it through because of COVID, because writers were the only ones that were still getting to work in the beginning of the pandemic. So there's a lot to watch there. Um, you know, I was at dinner with with two big writers earlier this week, and one of them was determined that there's going to be a strike, and the other one was determined that there isn't. <laughs>
0: so lots to watch there, and they're both brilliant for the record. so i'm I'm torn here. I'm speculating that, you know, the streamers are not going to budge. They're not going to give a back end. That's not their business model. That's not where their valuations are coming from. They're not a traditional studio model. What do you think?
1: I don't think they'll budge there. I think they'll raise their room minimums. I hope they'll raise their room minimums. Great. um, Because it really is... You know, I have people on Netflix shows that are upper level writers will tell me like I'm making as much as I made as a story editor on network right now. And I'm working, you know, just as hard, if not harder and for half the amount of weeks. Um, so I think that, that is the, the big thing that is going to have to change. Of course, everybody wants to see how do we make up residuals. But you also talk to writers who are on network shows that will tell you residual payments have been pulling back for a while because there's you know the programming is as such that they don't re-air a lot. Um, So I think the business model as a whole is changing, but we're really looking to see where, where digital comes in because ultimately they've had a lot more freedom in negotiating writers' contracts than networks, basic cable, cable have had so far.
0: The optimist in me thinks maybe the Netflix stumble will be an exciting moment possibly with the schadenfreude of Apple and others who are like, oh, we could catch them now in the race. And maybe they'll actually acquire more content in the midst of that or even bigger IP. What do you think? I think the danger with Netflix is that Netflix has the deepest of deep bench
1: for programming that has been produced and completed and ready to go that they haven't released, right? So they just have those vaults that has a, ha, they have a lot in them already um, that I think can keep them afloat for a while. They can they can stay competitive for a period of time while negotiating, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it's an interesting thing to watch because ultimately April, Apple and Amazon are going to be beholden to the same contracts where HBO Max, which is now a streamer, is under studio contract. Um, so I think that that's where like the Hulus and the, and the HBO Maxes um, might become... An even more attractive destination, and they are an attractive destination now. I mean, I have a writer who's uh, on a pitch tour this week, and Amazon and Hulu are two of the of the companies that he's pitching to that he's super excited about. Um,
0: So, so yeah, that's really cool. It's shifted so much, hasn't it? I mean, I remember back in 2011 in this industry where everyone was just so skeptical about any of. You know Netflix and we're never going to pitch them. You know, I had like significant e- Oscar winning EPs who were like, oh, I'll never pitch Netflix, you know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but then just a couple of years. It's like now they're the, the, the royalty of the, of the industry, so to speak, although they didn't really do well in the award season. I know that they're going to keep angling for that. For sure. But listen, the, the reality
1: is that when Netflix w- launched, they really held on with what they were launching, right? They waited to have House of Cards and Orange is the New Black to be the HBO of streamers. The funny thing is that then HBO Max launches, has a bit of a stumble on its initial launch, but then goes fairly wide with programming, releasing a lot more programming that they had as HBO proper, trying to become more of the Netflix of streamers in that they have something for everybody, right? They're still keeping their quality very, very high. Um, but they're definitely taking a page from Netflix that tried to provide something for everybody, right? The idea with Netflix is that whoever you are, once you tune in, you don't have to tune out. Now, the funny thing on top of this is 2017, I was interviewed for a podcast. And they asked me specifically, 2022, who's left standing? Is it Disney Mm -hmm. and Netflix? And I think it's really interesting to look at the Disney business model and the Netflix business model, because while Disney owns Lucasfilm and Marvel and the rest of the universe, they still don't have the Ozarks of the world, right? They're they're still not catering to that audience. They know their audience. They know really well. Obi-Wan's doing, like their shows are doing great. I'm not at all discounting from it, but they are not trying to supply the kind of mass amount of, of programming for every size. So in that, if you continue in that scenario, you have to believe that, wait, is there a world where it's Disney and one other? Um, I, at this point, I don't think there is because I never watched Disney plus, um, you know, or I'll tune in for an Obi-Wan or for a Hawkeye or whatever but it's not going to be, okay, all of my programming needs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I bounce around so much. I mean, I know all of us are feeling the squeeze of the subscription fatigue that's happening now too, where it's like, I really have to subscribe to all of these (laughs) platforms. It's just, it's so crazy. It's such a huge line item in the household... Budget for families, especially now, as you mentioned, the rise of gas prices and everything else, feeling that squeeze. I thought we, one area where I was wrong was I thought we would see bundling sooner with the bundling of the streamer packages. You know, for someone like Spectrum, Time Warner, somebody to come in and say, let's just start bundling so families can pay one fee to get access to some of these things. What do you think?
1: Listen, I think more and more and more people have cut the cord and therefore I don't, I no longer have spectrum. Um, I no longer have, I mean, I think my parents who live upstairs have dish, Um, (laughs) but we are, you know, when I need to watch something like that, I go upstairs. Um, but bundling, everybody's still fighting for positioning. Right. So it's, it's, it's a war that continues. Um, and everybody's holding out. Everybody's holding out to be Number one, and nobody's conceding yet. Right. And there are a few that should concede or, or understand their placement. Um, you know, but we also s- see a huge push coming from Amazon with the Hobbit, right? We see the amount of money that was spent oh, there awesome. to create that, right? That is clearly Lord of the Rings. Big, yeah, big, mm-hmm. big market push. Um, you know, HBO Max went back into the game of, of thrones universe to create a new series supposed to be great. Yes. Um there are those pushes still that are being made. Netflix just spent a ridiculous amount of money on Knives Out, right? Which is really not spending the money on the movie. It's spending the money on the Ryan Johnson business. Oh, That's a franchise. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. And, and and speaking of franchises, the Yellowstone franchise for Paramount that they're expanding uh, so vastly. Yeah. No, there's there's
1: just so much movement. And if you blink, it'll pass and nobody will talk about it. So that's why you have to kind of keep up with the news for lack of better words.
0: Since so much of the audience listens to the show are writers, let's talk about how this market change and shift will affect the types of deals that are happening for the creators. Cause there's a lot of panic right now, especially among screenwriting Twitter of like, what's going to happen with my pitch meetings, you know, and my shows, et cetera. Netflix is willing to cancel a Meghan Markle show. It seems like no one is, no one is safe.
1: Listen, I mean, we have HBO Max that just
0: put a JJ Abrams
1: show in turnaround. <gasps> That's pretty big. Wow, the budget was soaring. They were going going at over two hundred million. He has another show there that he shot the pilot for. That I think it puts into question whether they pull the trigger of that or whether Bad Robot and JJ Abrams just you know take their deal elsewhere when that time comes. Um, we are seeing some kind of conservative, more conservative spending on occasion, but again, you can offset that with the knives out conversation. Um, but we are seeing that in real time. I mean, the JJA happened at HBO this week, where they announced that his show that was getting just too big, just too expensive, was not sustainable for them. It isn't turnaround. Is the rumor is the hope is that it goes to Apple. Apple has been quite famous about Apple doesn't take pitches if you don't have a big name on it. Right, they do not take it, you do not walk in the door. Um, and so that is a natural home for that. I am finding the pitches are still going out. Um, you know, like I said, I have somebody who's in a pitch tour this week, so tomorrow we will wait to see everything will be done. We'll see if they're competitive off or competing offers. Um, you know, but I've, it's always after we go through pickups for the new network TV season. And I know it's different. It's network versus streaming that we're just waiting to see where the dust settles. What, what are network doing? Networks doing? What are they doing? How are they doing? We see a huge pullback on comedy. How is that reflected? If with streamers, are they going to look for more comedy then? Because it's not those needs are not being met on network anymore. Um, but well, and I,
0: that, that's interesting because they, it seems like so many of us are, are, Yearning for and craving feel-good content. And Mm -hmm. yet the dialing back of comedy has been consistent since the beginning of the pandemic. Even after successive shows like Fleabag, you know, that prove that the comedy dramedy is what people want. Um, even the feel-goods like Ted Lasso that are just killing it. Um, do you think it's because there's the concern about comedy not being PC? Because Netflix doesn't have that concern. They didn't didn't really um budge on the Dave Chappelle special or anything. Listen, I think the thinking here is that ultimately the best comedy right now is coming from streamers
1: that have more money and more freedom, and more content creators want to go to them. And we've seen, you know, attempts at broader comedies like um, the Abishola Show on on CBS. We've seen those attempts, but I think that they're catering to a different audience. I think that a younger audience is looking for the flea bags um and it's looking for the ted lassos of the world that is the biggest comedy that, that we have right now in programming um and the streamers are just more daring when it comes to like hacks is on hbo though yep. they just finished their last season it was or they're not la- this last season not the last season Yeah, um, it's brilliant
0: it's fantastic I just, watched, I just watched the finale last night so good so good so yes, yeah, so I, I think that
1: it's just, networks have never done that, and because they haven't been able to recreate their next big bang bang, big bang theory, theory. Exactly. <laughs> like or you know how I like met mother, or <laughs> any of those, they've not been able to create that. That is what they're looking for, and that's it's the lightning in a bottle.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So yeah, so I think it's uh, you know we're seeing a change in programming, but I you know I do find that buying is still happening. Pitching and pitches are still going out. I think it's important to remember that pitches are going out from known content creators, from known storytellers. Once in a while, Dr. Reiter will say like, I want to take this out as a pitch, but if nobody knows you, you're not taking it out as a pitch. Um, but, but pitches from known content creators are going out all the time.
0: Yeah. Never more important to build your name brand. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That, those are, they command the war chests of the industry. Yeah. And listen, it's it, becoming
1: a known storyteller. You know, there's a path there through features. There's a path there through staffing. It's not, it's not a chicken or the egg scenario, but there are ways to become known. It's just, everybody talks about TV like everybody wants TV, just go write a thing and sell it. Unfortunately, not quite that simple. Um, And everybody who's working
0: on TV is trying to sell something trying to get some development going because that's a mythology, isn't it? I'm always reminding my students, your actual competition is celebrities. Like David Duchovny is pitching his adaptation and you're going in and competing for the same dollars. You have to be so standout, so undeniable to go command, you know, to actually sell anything. Totally.
1: I mean, I keep thinking back to swingers. Uh, when John Favreau, who's, you know, in the movie, his first movie, a failed stand-up comic who came to LA in hopes of getting a sitcom, and says, "Like back in New York, they made it sound that you walk, like you walk off the plane, and somebody hands you a sitcom." I think it's a little bit of the same in writers and TV right now. Just go write the thing; it'll be fine. You'll make it. Not so much. Um, so you know, for for a little throwback, watch Swingers and imagine that you are not the writer. Imagine that you're John
0: Favreau. Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh. That's that's so great. So true. So here we are. We're sitting here in early June on the heels of the massive box office success. That is, that is Top Gun. Let's talk about the cruise universe for a minute and what this means for the box office after the pandemic. I mean, first of all, congratulations, Paramount. Yes. Congratulations, Paramount. Dark
1: horse in the race pulls ahead. I mean, they've had a good year, right? They've had scream. They've had this. I mean, They're a long-suffering studio um, that never quits, which is great. We don't want them to quit. The
0: the lover of underdogs in me loves them so much.
1: (laughs) So congratulations, Paramount. Listen, it's great. Um, It it really is great to see the box office reawakening. We are recording this today. Um, The new Jurassic World is coming out today. Um, it's expected to be north of uh, 125, I think, which is not great in normal times, post, post-pandemic post fantastic, especially because yes. the numbers are going up. Um, so we are seeing a more consistent box office that is consistently growing, which is really exciting to see. I'm still looking for the CODAs of the world. Yes. I'm looking to find that.
0: and I And I do believe that we will. God, I loved Coda. Did you see Dog? Channing Tatum's. I movie. have not yet, but it's definitely oh, on my list. You, you love it. see it? I, it was my favorite movie of the year. I'm I'm sorry to everything, everywhere, all at once, but Dog was the one that stole my heart because, of course, I love dogs. But here we have a really smart and touching script that. Um, you, actually really goes across the aisle politically in the most hilarious and heartwarming of ways. And you've got Channing Tatum pretty much in a monologue for the entire movie opposite a dog in honor of his own dog who passed away on this beautiful road trip movie and has done over 80 million at the box office, um, which is sensational. Absolutely, and listen. I
1: think that what we are seeing, and I think a lot of it is informed by the Netflixes of the world and the Amazons of the world, is that unlikely content is being found. Right? We're we're seeing movies that are not necessarily Top Gun, no offense to Top Gun, that are still finding an audience. Making, I mean, there was a week where all anybody would talk to me about was everything. ever watched. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean. And that's right. And and you're looking at, you know, quirky TV content like severance. Um, that is very, I mean, it's weird. It's strange. It's scary. But it's also, you know, odd um, in the best way. I mean that most lovingly. Um, but I think that we're seeing the the box office continue to grow. We are a supply and demand in industry have always been. There is, uh, the demand for content hasn't stopped since the pandemic. It grew exponentially during the pandemic where all of us were sitting at home going, Oh my God, 365 days. How do we fill them? What do we do with that time? Um, You know, it it caused the death of Quibi, but, you know, there's that. Um, But I think that we are going to continue to see that growth because audiences are showing up. As long as it's looking up and not down, you're going to see more movies released. You're going to see that path um, strengthen uh, for more movies, more types of movies. And that's really exciting. And listen, I think Top Gun... Manage to harness a lot of nostalgia and bring in new audiences all at once. That's a lot to do.
0: Yeah, across generations. Yeah, you know, I, grandparents seeing it with their grandkids, and you know, all across the board. It's a beautiful way to share the love of movies and and film. Yeah, and it's it's fun. I was just sitting with my parents and talking about Turner Classic Movies and you're telling them, Hey, you know, get the app. Look, they have a library on the app and you can, all you just said on demand, watch any of these old fabulous classics. And I still keep it on in the background when I'm having my work day, you know, it's like a companion in the room and I can glance back and go, Oh my God, night of the iguana. And like, take a few minutes to have my snack and sit down and watch, you know, a little bit of the, of the movies that I've loved too, going back through time. You know, we, my dad was not in the movie business, but he grew up in Hollywood. He went to Hollywood High and dated Shirley Temple. And he had that the roots because he was the golf partner of Bob Hope. So even though he was in the cosmetics industry, he was always around the movie business. And because he was 50 years older than me, he had me at 50, Wow. We didn't have a common language. We had you know, such a huge gap in our, in our age and, you know, the challenges of his big entrepreneurial life. And I was just, you know, I was like a, a child, um, but I figured out in my teens, we had, we, the, our common language was going to be films. And, you know, if ever he was in a bad mood, I could sit down and we could talk about, you know, one of the films I'd watched recently going back, you know, with Errol Flynn or whoever, and he'd come out, he'd bust out with some Errol Flynn story or something. And it was, it was unifying.
1: And I believe that that's what movies are. And you know, I, I've always seen the modern movie theaters as the, as the modern church, right? That's where, our, where we are politically doesn't matter. That's where you know whether we're gay, straight, or otherwise doesn't matter. We all come in for this unifying experience, this transformative experience that mm-hmm. discards our differences, right? It it is not about that. It is about the that experience in that dark room with people that could be a, on the other side of the political spectrum on the other side of your belief system, but that, that falls away. And I think that's the beauty of, first of all, movie theaters, because I still believe in the darkened movie theater that you walk into and, you know, kind of give yourself to, for those two hours with your phone put away without any distractions, without the pause button. Um, and that that's really the beauty of it, because we can agree on film. That is like the, that's what's left that we can agree on, but that's still pretty big.
0: It's still pretty big and it does cross cultural mm-hmm. and generational divides. And what else does that? What a music, yeah. you know, there's not a lot aside from the arts that, that does that now when we're so polarized, uh, everywhere across the spectrum, you know, it is gay pride month, the LGBTQ pride month, pride month. Um, that's my community and let's talk about it. Some of the cool shows that are on right now that people can enjoy and watch That maybe they wouldn't be watching otherwise, especially if they're part of the straight community. So first and foremost, if you haven't watched
1: this yet, like stop everything, just be done for the day and go watch Heartstopper. Yeah. The loveliest thing that you can find. It is so beautiful and heartwarming. And I don't know if you had a chance to check it out yet. I'm about halfway through the pilot, but loving it. Uh, It's on Netflix. Yep. It is Um, so lovely. Another show that just won a Peabody, by the way, is that we are Lady Parts on Peacock, um, which is great. Um, We also have, we are, as we're recording this, um, Queer as Folk is launching its new iteration on Peacock. Um, I believe we're 23 years out from the original premiere, Canadian premiere, I believe, um, which is super exciting. But listen, I mean, you think about. How far we've come in programming, right? Coming from that first kiss on Melrose Place, coming out from or growing growing up from Ellen coming out, and onto shows like Vida, and onto shows yeah, Vida. Um, like Transparent. Yeah. That and really, pose and pose. yeah, and uh, so many and Pose, pose that's just amazing. Uh, you know, the Stevens did such an amazing job with. Like, there is so much, and it's just. It's so wonderful to see the various ways into that content. And listen, I work with writers who are very much um, in the LGBTQ community. And I love that now they can write a a protagonist that has an LGBTQ driven relationship, a same sex relationship, um, without having to pounce. The show is not about that. The movie is not about that, right? That can be a storyline, but it is not the central thing. I love that. I mean, I understand that every experience is worth telling, but I love the feeling that as an audience, we've graduated to be able to kind of see that as part of the fabric, right? And we have a recorded history of all of these great shows, the poses of the world and Vida and Queers Folk and like all of that, um showing up in a way that allows us to now tell stories that include members of the lgbtq community without it being exclusively about gender identity and sexual orientation right and i think that is the important part to get to because much like you know the african american community wants to graduate from slavery it can't all be the slavery experience and i hear right. that a lot from my african american writers like i Why do we have to write just about that? And I I agree with that. And I think that's true for LGBTQ writers and experiences that it's a more complete 360 experience rather than just the coming out experience, the gay lens, et cetera, et cetera. And don't get me wrong, if that's what you want to write, like, though, that's not stopping anybody. But the fact that we can be more inclusive than that and that LGBTQ characters can take a central role that is not about their sexuality
0: necessarily all the time it's fantastic. It's beautiful, allowing for more nuance. It, I'd love to recommend a Tales of the City marathon to the original PBS Laura Lenny, you know, based on the Armistead Maupin novels, which are so charming and, you know, his original newspaper column, um, in, in San Francisco Chronicle. And then the new one that came out with Elliot page, the new series on Netflix that I, I think didn't get the love and praise and admiration that it deserved. There were some incredible conversations that happened within the, um, within the new, the new season, I think it came out in 2020 Yep. Uh, and some of the conversations that the characters were having, these LGBTQ characters were even having a dinner about the way the community has changed the way it changed after AIDS hit so hard in the 1990s and then how it has shifted and evolved, you know, to where we are today. Uh, it, it just is fascinating to me, and I, I've learned a lot from it and grown a lot from it, even from within the community. I've expanded my own understanding, of my own community. I, it's a beautiful thing that these shows can do for us is create empathy, create compassion, build bridges where there might have been divides, and allowing people to have differences of opinion and life experience, but allowing those differences to, to exist with nuance. Like you're saying, not just the coming out story, but the nuance of a lived identity and experience as a whole human being. And that's exactly. also for the BIPOC community too, like it's not just your trauma porn or your slavery mm-hmm. stories, you know, we want you to be whole fabric human beings um, without without the stereotypes sort of getting in the way.
1: Exactly, and I think we're seeing more and more in that. That, that means that we're allowing for more complete portrayals of individual because nobody is any one thing ever. Doesn't matter how you, and and listen, I'm, I come from a background, I'm an Israeli Jew. Holocaust is everywhere. It's all about the Holocaust all the time. That's not the only story that I come from, right? Um, At the end of the day, nobody is about any one thing, no matter how traumatic that one thing is. And I think that limiting one to just their trauma is entirely unfair to the individual, to the creator, to the audience. Um, and so I agree with you. We're seeing a much more complete experience, different sides of experience. And I just hope that we get to see lots more of it because I think there are so many of those stories to tell. And finally, they're getting told. Um, can't be soon enough. Uh, but I think I think it's just incredibly important. And listen, we're seeing now um, in initiatives like disruptors that I think is wrapping up its fellowship today, tomorrow. So by the time you hear this, look for next year's disruptors, um, and Raven rainbow pages that promotes pre WGA LGBTQ writers. Like we are seeing a lot of this outfest. There's more and more places for more and more voices, which I think is fantastic because honestly, when I was coaching, 5 or 6 or 7 or 10 years ago and talking to writers of any walk of life um you know the conversation about okay you are a member of the lgbtq community but you're constantly having to write straight relationships mm-hmm. or you're black or hispanic or east asian or whatever and yet you're constantly being forced to write white characters how does that feel and i curiously i i just wanted to know what that experience like the fact that we
0: no longer have to have those conversations um, it's just great washing goes back so many decades for the actors on screen too, yeah. who were not allowed to be live and out life, uh, and experience. Yeah.
1: Listen, I think things are changing. They, they haven't gone the whole way yet. We're still working on it. It's a work in progress. And I think there's, you know, there's always plenty of things to criticize if we want to, but I think the progress is being made and that's reflected in the content that we're seeing, which is just fantastic. I love that. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and member FDSE.
0: Let, let's talk writers take five. Let's talk tips for writers and what's happening in the market right now, especially any identifying any trends and ley lines that you're seeing. I know you have so many friends in these spaces. So we are wrapping up up front. Well, we've wrapped up up We're wrapping yeah. up staffing season,
1: which means that if you've not been staffed on network, likely it's not going to happen this year. A lot of writers are like, can I still get out? The reality is that staffing is happening now year round with the streamers. Um, and so if you are viable for staffing, this is a good time to talk to representation and see what the plan is. Um, we are finding a lot of staffing right now is, is happening while we still have Zoom rooms. A lot of it is still happening, um, you know, very in kind of very insulated ways where it's either, you know, the showrunner, you know, the showrunner's best friend, you know, somebody in the room and you bring very specific experience That is relevant for the show that you are trying to get on. Um, So we are seeing that it's at at this point, the rumors are that for every open lower level writer position in the room, there's somewhere between 300 and 500 scripts that are being submitted. Um, So submission by representation is not necessarily going to be the most effective because of that. It is about interpersonal skills, um, that I do think are so important build community, especially if you want to be a TV writer, you got to know a lot of people. I was, uh, I interviewed a writer, good friend, Amadou Diallo on my screenwriter support group a few weeks ago. And he talked a lot about networking laterally. Getting to know other writers, building your community. TV is really a communal experience. So, so
0: imperative. That- In the entertainment business school, I talk a lot about finding your wolf pack because mm-hmm. if you are relying exclusively on your reps for these types of submissions it's not going to be as likely to happen for you. You've got to make friends, get out there, make friends with the showrunners, make friends with the other writers and make sure that people are reading your most recent scripts and samples so that you just have that much more likelihood that you're going to be working because you're with, it's an ecosystem, you know, it's an ecosystem of who's working. And at any given time, you know, in that ecosystem, call it 10 people, maybe two are working and have that ability to say, Hey, I can pull you in. And, you know, if you're working, you can pull in others, but you've got, to be tapped into the ecosystem otherwise if you're outside if you're lone wolfing you're just you're get you're gonna starve.
1: Absolutely. and listen I have a longtime client who now has a deal at FX and she's developing now content with two writers that were a member of her writers groups right so you know they're on a writers group together absolutely now are in their career five six seven years ago since then most of them have staffed or gone to fellowships or whatnot but you know she pays she got involved in one 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 writer's show that sold to the network where she had a pod, she's developing another show with a writer who's just out of the fellowship. Um, They're developing it as a podcast first, then they're going to, um, you know, they're going to go that route and then try to get it to series. Um, but it is about who, you know, and it is about those relationships that are incredibly important. If you want to write features all day long and be insulated and hope that you can, you know, submit, win a contest, do a thing. Okay. Um, even better write
0: novels. (laughs)
1: Um, whatever works for you, but it is at the end of the day, you know, writers often will say like, well, why do I have to be social? I write alone. But in order to get jobs in the industry and we are in in an industry where the majority of writers make their living writing pages. So writing assignments or staffing in a writer's rooms, whatnot, rather than selling original content, we're just not doing that as much. You have to be in a room with executives. You have to know how to take notes. You have to know how to make friends. You have to, to know how to communicate to an executive, yes, I may not be the most dynamic or charismatic person in the world, but developing with me is going to be great. Um, I don't think it's about, I don't think it's, you know, you don't have to be Tom Cruise walking into every meeting, uh, for good or bad, but you do have to communicate that you know how to work collaboratively because developing on the studio level, developing on the TV level, takes a
0: lot of input from a lot of people and a lot of conversations yeah the the being gracious and uh leaning forward in your personality and anyone who's listening is like oh but i'm an introvert that comes up over and over and it, it is a muscle that you can develop making friends getting yourself out there getting to a place where you're getting comfortable in those rooms you know maybe you join a group in your community where you can practice public speaking. um, there, there are lots, there's lots you can practice flexing that muscle so that by the time you're in front of people, after having been, you know, concealed within the, the world of a script, you can get out there and say, okay, yeah, I can activate this side of my personality, flex this muscle and engage warmly with the people across the table. They're, they're on your side. And here's an important thing to remember. Most
1: writers that are introverts and many writers are, have gone out and gotten a job, right? Sat across an interview table from a hiring manager, from an executive and got a job. Yes. This is much the same thing, but it's a longer conversation. So if you find that you're shy or you're nervous, or you have a hard time thinking on your feet, go to improv go, you know, find Great your suggestion. I was thinking Toastmasters. Yes. Toast, mm-hmm. right there with you. Like Toastmasters, yep. your local Toastmasters chapter work on that. You don't have to be that all the time, but you have to know how to show up with that in the room because that's just the job requirements when you are developing in this industry.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and get a therapist. <laughs> a really good therapist, kind <laughs> of really great therapist. Sometimes you're going to come out of those meetings and really need to unpack what happened and your feelings about it all. And that's where the wolf pack is going to come in really handy as well. Yeah, who who have you got on your speed dial? Who you can ring and say, "Here's what's happening right now." And who who have you got on your speed dial? Who you trust? It's so important. We're in a trust economy. Uh, this is how your career happens. You've got to be around people who you trust. I've, I speak a lot in the entertainment business school, though, maybe less in the podcast about my time working for Gary Shanling. And that was a very prevailing theme for him, a life theme about being, he's so, tr- he was so trusting. He was too trusting. And he looked back and really regretted how trusting he was. And, you know, the, the pain that that caused him of having people around him who were not trustworthy. It's just so important for your mental health, for your, your life to be able to work with people who you know, have your back. Yeah. That aren't just, you know, what's in it for me, but you know, we're willing to get your back too.
1: the people that can commiserate with you when something didn't go your way. The people that can celebrate the little ones that may not mean anything to your family because they don't know how Amazing it is to be semifinalist in the Nickel, or you know, get to interview around with Warner Brothers, whatever it is. Um, you ha- you have to have the people with you that will understand the journey and support you on it because they're
0: just in your corner, they're just your people, and you're theirs. Yeah, absolutely. My best friend of you know twenty years is a rigor. In New York, he's the guy who pulls pianos up and down the side of buildings, uh, Jack. And you know, he said no know anything about the movie business, but we he let me lets me vent, lets me talk about what's <laughs> happening. And uh, I value his feedback and opinion so much. You know that that truthful Irish way of just calling it like he sees it is uh, is so beautiful. And having people outside the industry who can do that for you is like we can get so myopic and so um, nearsighted and stuck on oh what is what is right in front of us the shiny jewel. And it's important to step back and realize, you know, you've got to hug your children and get outside and take a walk in nature and <laughs> do all. Agreed. That. keep you sane. Well, Lee, thank you so much for your, your time today. I'm really excited about our new segment that's just in. i um, excited to have you back and, and we'll keep the conversation going. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a blast spending the time with you. I
1: hope everybody listens and enjoys what we have to say and forgives whatever we say that doesn't go their way or rubs them the wrong way. I'm